but there will be no gloom for who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we, for the span of four weeks of Advent, are considering this one passage just kind of slowly working through Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Um, and we're going to be looking kind of at verses 3 to 5 uh, this morning. But before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we pause in your presence uh, to remember that we are in your presence, uh, to remember that the words that we just read, that we are considering, are, are not, just, um, not just facts or information, but they actually are you speaking to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say, and that you would help me to speak uh, clearly and faithfully to your word, that you would strengthen your church and glorify your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the passage that we just considered, or that we just read, I think uh, calls us to something very simple, and yet at the same time very difficult. It calls us to hope. I was uh, reading this week some reflections of a youth pastor who just stopped being a youth pastor about his experience with some of the teens of this generation. And he basically said, we don't understand just how challenging it is right now to be growing up. He said, on one hand, there's the pressure. And I think we probably are aware that, that a lot, our teens face a lot of pressure. He says, you know, sixth graders are talking about work-life balance. 
that there's already a sense of kind of career-orientedness from middle school onward, and, and every evaluation, every assessment is a measure of whether their life is going to be okay or not. So there's the pressure, but he says, that's not the only thing. He says, in all this time as a youth pastor, he does not remember hearing students say, I am so excited if I can work and if I can do these things, this is going to be my future, and it's going to be great. There was almost no sense amongst the students that he worked with that if they, if they do well and work well, their lives could even be better than their parents. There was really all of this pressure and yet no sense of promise, of, of future hope. Now that's different, I mean, from, from when I grew up. I think it's different from pretty much any generation that's before. I, mean, I grew up in the 80s, and the 80s, of course, has a lot of things we can criticize about it, but a lack of optimism is not one of the things. You, this was the Reagan era where you know, the economy seemed to be growing. You had computer technology, and, and the future seemed limitless. Communism was coming down. There was optimism. But, but what reason do people have for hope now? I mean... What do, we, what do we see in the news? We have an economy that is looming under the shadow of huge government debt. There are, there are vast regions of our nation that are being overrun by drug addiction and suicide. Our, our environment is being done irreparable harm to, and, and it doesn't seem like the government has any ability whatsoever to steer us through this. What reason do these teens who are growing up right now have for hope for the future? Really, if we're honest, if we just kind of look starkly at what we see right now, what reason do we have for being optimistic? If we're honest and we're just measuring things up by what we see, the odds seem stacked against us. It seems, it seems when we're looking at the present, when we're looking at all of the things that we know, that the odds seem stacked against us, don't they? Which is what make our passage so, so striking. Because what we have in these words, what we have in, in God's words, is a summons to unabashed, wholehearted, bold hope. If you were uh, not with us last week, um, when we began looking at this, we were considering how as Isaiah is speaking these words, the, the people of God are in a very difficult situation. It's very dark. It's very grim. They're no longer just one nation. They're divided into two. And, and the southern nation, Judah, is now basically under the ownership, the dominion of this brutal king, Assyria. They are essentially, they've given themselves to him, and that's a terrible thing. And, and the northern tribes have it even worse because this same king, Assyria, who is awful, decimated, took a good third of the nation, destroyed Galilee, and sent all of the inhabitants there elsewhere. And so it feels dark. It feels grim. If you are the people of Israel and you are just looking right now at the situation, if you were to look at the news, you would say, I cannot imagine how things can get good. The odds are so deeply stacked against us. And yet in this moment, you have 
It's, it's like God has given Isaiah this, this telescope. Not that helps him to look further, but actually helps him to look in the future. And as he's looking, he's reporting what he sees. And what he sees is hope. It says, in the, in the latter time, in the future, he has made glorious the way of the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. As he's looking, he says, the people who are right now walking in darkness, Galilee who has been so destroyed, they're, they're seeing a great light. There is somehow, even as he's looking at the present and seeing such misery, such unlikelihood of things getting better, there is something that he sees in the future that is glorious. And in our passage this morning, we see more what that light consists of, what is causing hope as Isaiah is looking down the lens of this telescope and seeing the future and kind of reporting back to us what he sees. So verse 3, we see how this, this future feels. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. My guess is it doesn't take a commentator or even me to explain what, what the mood of this verse is because it's repeated again and again. Joy, joy, joy. There is in the future, as Isaiah looks, for the people who right now are in such despair, just unimaginable, inexpressible joy. Joy of being in a community, of a growing, vibrant, growing country. The joy of of prosperity as they receive in their harvest food upon food and no need of more. Joy of security as their enemies are destroyed. Joy. Do you, do you long for joy? I, I know I do. There's something even just about that, that word, about what it connotes in my mind that just captivates me. I, I, think, I think we could agree that there's something fundamental about the human condition that we crave joy above almost anything else. I mean, for you, that joy might, might be associated with different things. Maybe we long for the joy of accomplishment, of, of doing something well and just feeling that satisfaction. Or maybe you find yourself especially thirsting for the joy in terms of relationships, of family, of connectedness, of community. Or, or maybe it's just that quiet joy of being able to rest and, and enjoy the beauty of the things around us. But, but don't we just hunger and long for joy? And really, when we're talking about hope, we're, that, that's really what we're talking about. Hope is just the anticipation of joy in the future, Right? Hope means right now things aren't the way necessarily we want them to be, but we see on the horizon that there will be joy. And because it's in the future, we anticipate it right now. And in some ways, even in that anticipation, that sense of longing, that expectation, there's a little bit of, of joy about the idea of what one day will be. So when I was a kid, I remember whenever our Christmas tree was put up, suddenly that put me into this kind of place of agony. But it was a good agony, because the moment I saw the tree, I knew, I knew it wasn't that long before we would see presents, and then on Christmas morning when we came down the stairs and we opened it, and there would be joy. 
And so the waiting was so hard. Once the tree was up, I knew it was close, but, but the, the agony was kind of a delicious agony, right? Because, because you knew it was close. And just imagining and just thinking about the opening of the presence brought a kind of delight. That's, that's what hope is. It's, it's the anticipation of joy that in some ways even brings joy to the present. And, and that's, that's what Isaiah invites his people to. He says, look, I see, I see joy. I see joy in the future, joy where there is darkness right now. Therefore, people of God, hope. And no one, I think, no one would have listened to him or believed him in that moment. I think they would have thought that what Isaiah is saying is so ridiculous, so counter to everything. Isaiah, get Get back on your medication. You clearly are seeing things. This is not possible. Because, because the thing about the people of God at that time is not just that they were experiencing bad times. We all go through bad times. It's that they were stuck. They were stuck in such a way that it was impossible to conceive of things ever getting better. So when we go to the next verse, verse 4, there's this allusion to a yoke. Now, that's an image that would have made a lot of sense then, but we don't think about now. And, and that day, if you wanted to plow your field, if you wanted to kind of dig up the dirt so that you could expose it to the air, that plow was heavy, and so you would use an ox to pull it. And what you would do is you would put this big wooden frame around the ox's neck that was chained to this heavy plow. And if you were the farmer, you'd just keep on hitting that ox, and it couldn't do anything but just kind of go forward. It is not a pleasant image, right? I mean, to have a yoke around you means you are stuck, means your only possibility is just to do the difficult, unpleasant things while you're experiencing unpleasantness behind you. It is not a good image. And, and, and God in verse 4 is speaking about that is the situation of Israel. They had a yoke. That yoke was the king of Assyria, this, this cruel king who was so powerful whose army was so far beyond anything God's people had that it was impossible to conceive of anything different from having to serve Assyria again and again, stuck in this yoke, experiencing his beating them again and again. And so hope was just unimaginable. The odds are so far against it. And yet what does Isaiah say in verse 4? As he's looking down the telescope, he says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. He's speaking to God. You have broken it. There will be a time where this yoke will be broken. And God's people are like, I cannot believe that. It seems so unlikely. The, the odds are so far against it. And Isaiah says, yes, but it will be like the day of Midian. Right? That's how it finishes in verse 4. You have broken it as on the day of Midian. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. And let me just spend some time thinking about Midian because that story, I think, is so illustrative of what God is saying in these verses. So, this is talking about something that took place in the life of God's people centuries earlier. They had just entered into the promised lands. They were just kind of settling. And, and one of their next-door neighbors, Midian, was cruel to them. There was kind of like this economic terrorism almost. Whenever Israel was kind of putting together their grain and getting ready to harvest, the people of Midian would quick sweep down on the farms and take the grain, or if it wasn't ready, they would destroy it. And so that meant because Israel didn't have the soldiers to defend every field, that they would slowly be starving while Midian was getting fatter and fatter. 
And so they were, I mean, they were stuck. They were under a yoke, right? And so you have this, this, this one moment as they are, after they've been crying out to God in prayer, Lord, please free us from this, that you have this one young man, Gideon, who's this farmer. He's in a, a wine vat. That is like there's walls all around him. He's trying to thresh grain. And if you know anything about threshing, it depends on wind. So being in there, that's not working very well. Maybe he's blowing on it or something. This is something he's doing because he's scared. He doesn't want the Midianites to see that he's got grain. He's, he's terrified of the Midianites. And so we're told that this angel comes to Gideon. And I'm not sure Gideon knows it's an angel. It just seems like maybe a random man. And the angel says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And I'm sure Gideon is, is, is doing this right now. I mean, he's this guy who is this young farmer hiding in a wine vat, and he's being told he's a valiant warrior. And then, and then this angel continues, go in that strength that is yours and save Israel from the Midianites. And at this point, like, Gideon just stops him because Gideon knows himself. And frankly, if we're honest, Gideon is a bit of a coward. And he says, look, I belong to the weakest family in my tribe, and I quite honestly am the least of that family. So I am supposed to lead Israel to save them from Midian? And the angel is completely unsurprised by what he says. And the angel speaking on God's behalf says, but I will be with you. Yes, the odds seem completely against you, but you need to understand, I will be with you, and that's enough. Now, that doesn't convince Gideon. Gideon is afraid, and so it actually takes one sign after another. There's an offering that's destroyed. There is a fleece that has to get wet, another fleece that has to get dry. Sign after sign before Gideon is finally convinced, oh, okay, I guess God is with me. I guess I'll at least try to obey. And so he eventually does, but then there's a problem. This is not the most charismatic, amazing guy. How is he going to gather an army? But it says the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he, he blows a trumpet, and he sends out messengers, and 32,000 soldiers come. I mean, that's amazing. The odds were against him, but the Lord is with him. But God says there's a problem about the number of soldiers that you have. And Gideon's like, I know. I'm not sure we have enough to face, like, the Midianite army. He's like, no, you misunderstand. You have way too many soldiers. With this size of army, if you go and when you win, you will probably conclude that it's because you are strong enough. It's because the odds were in your favor, and that's just not the way it is. I want you to remove 31,700 soldiers. Send them away. Maybe you'll use them later. I just want it to be an army of 300. And tonight, I want you to attack the army of Midian. But I know you're probably not ready for this, God says. So... If you don't feel like you can do this yet, go and spy on the camp of the Midianites. They, they're in the valley. They're not far away. Go and just listen to what you hear. So Gideon definitely is not ready to take 300 people and attack a vast army. And so he goes to this valley, and it says as he looks, he sees, and they're like, like sand on the seashore. They're innumerable, like this enormous swarm of locusts. He cannot count them. It is overwhelming. How in the world can they stop Midian? But he does what he is told. He, he listens, and he happens to just listen to two soldiers talking to each other at night. 
and, and they're talking about a dream that one of them had. And that person, as he relays the dream, Gideon is listening. And what he says is this dream, in this dream, Gideon led an army and destroyed us. And for some reason, in that moment, in the quiet of the night, as he is listening, he realizes that God was the one who orchestrated all of this. And it says he worships. He suddenly realizes what it means that God is there with him. And he goes back to the 300 and he says, The Lord has given us Midian. Yes, the odds seem stacked against us, but God is with us. And so he and the 300 soldiers go and they they make a lot of noise and they bring a lot of light and they so startle the army of Midian in the middle of the night that when the Midianites get up, they start actually attacking each other because they're so bewildered. They get utterly routed. And with just 300 people facing tens of thousands, because God is with them, they are victorious. And Isaiah says, what was true then in the time of Midian is is no less true now. In that day, it wasn't about the size of the army. It wasn't about the odds it was about God. And so also today, when, when God is promising hope, it doesn't matter how big that yoke is around your neck or how impossible it seems to get past the stuckness. It doesn't matter how feeble and inadequate you might feel. It doesn't matter how much the odds seem against you. God is with you. And therefore, you can hope. And then Isaiah, as he's kind of looking down this telescope and he's looking at the future, he sees something more than just the defeat of the king of Syria, more than the breaking of that yoke. He sees God breaking our yoke as well. Let me ask you, do you you feel hopeful? Do you find yourself, when you're thinking about Life predisposed towards, towards hopefulness. I realize some of us are more optimistic. Some of us are more pessimistic. That's partly a personality. And my guess is hopefully many of us, at least when we step back and look realistically at what we see, we realize the news does not give us a whole lot of reason for optimism. I mean, technology is not going to save us. We used to think that, that as tech gets better, life will get better. But more and more, interaction with technology means it's a mixed bag, and we feel that. Government is not going to somehow save us. We maybe once thought that good leadership would be able to bring us in the right direction. Now it's horribly dysfunctional, and how many actually think that's going to take place? And it's not just when we look at the news or around us, when we look within us. How much reason for optimism do we find? I mean, we're we're told if we just believe in ourselves, we can do anything. But if we just look honestly, the level of confusion we see within us, the level of brokenness we see within us, how much reason is there for, for hope? We, it's not just that we're in a bad place, it's, it's that we're stuck, right? That, that we, we are under a yoke. Not the, not the yoke of, of a particular leader. It's, 
It's a yoke that goes deeper and that's bigger than that. It's the yoke that we feel when we realize that human selfishness has put us in such terrible debt and has done such damage to the environment. It's, it's the yoke we see when we see injustice and cruelty. It's the yoke we see within us when we see our own self-centeredness and pride that we can't seem to grow out of. And that's the thing. This is why it feels like a yoke. Because it doesn't matter. We have had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years and it doesn't seem like we've been able to solve this. This yoke, this yoke of evil, we might call it, or, or the Bible calls the yoke of sin, we have gotten so stuck in, and, and we don't have any ability to cast it off. And that's, that's what God says when Isaiah looks down the telescope. That's, that's the yoke that God is going to break. And look with me at, at verse 5. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults. You know, if you were a farmer and you were in a home, the, the most terrifying noise you can imagine is hearing just the trotting of thousands upon thousands of boots coming towards you. You knew life was over. Every garment rolled in blood. This is the other side of the fight, right? This is the, the picture of, of soldiers who are looking kind of dizzied and confused as they've faced something absolutely horrific, and they have fallen and gotten back up, and it's not just mud, but it is, it is the blood of people on their cloaks. This is the before and after of war, right? If we need any greater evidence of the yoke of evil upon us, isn't it war? I mean, we know there is nothing glorious or beautiful about war. It's horrific. It is the worst of all things. And yet, century after century, we keep on being stuck fighting. And yet, what do we see here? Every boot, every garment will be burned as fuel the fire. The idea is you will never need these boots or these garments again, because when I am done, there will never be war again. In other words, God is showing Isaiah as he's looking down this telescope, it's not just that I'm going to destroy this one oppressor. I'm going to put an end to all oppressors. It's not just that I'm going to save you from this one battle. I am going to put an end to all battles. I am going to destroy evil itself. That is what Isaiah sees, an end to all suffering. And he says, therefore, hope. Do you feel hopeful? Are you able, as you hear this, as you try to hold on to the truths of the gospel, to actually look beyond the present, look beyond the way things feel, and be truly hopeful? Because in some ways, we have much more reason for hope even than God's people. We have seen these promises fulfilled. We talked about this last week. It promises that in Galilee, of all places, Galilee where, the, Galilee where there's ruins, there will be light. And hundreds of years later, Jesus comes to Galilee. 
And he shines his light and he declares the kingdom of God is at hand. And he offers hope. And people misunderstand it. They think he's saying, we're going to take on Rome because Rome was the power. We're going to destroy Rome. But Jesus has a much bigger plan, right? Jesus has decided that he's not just going to destroy Rome. He's going to destroy evil itself. And he, obeying his father, goes to the cross. And on the cross, he puts to an end the power of sin and the power of evil. And rising from the dead, he is victorious over death itself. And, and we see evidence of this yoke being broken. It's, it's like we've been in winter for so long and now there's just these beginning buds of spring, of, of places where evil once was, where its power has been broken. We see people who were once at odds with each other, now friends. I think of the story of Paul who was trying to destroy the church and then Jesus appears to him and then he serves the church with his life. We see people who once hoarded their goods with greed, giving it all away. Perhaps you know the story of Francis of Assisi of how he was once rich and then he gave everything. We see the story of people who are cruel and deeply corrupt being changed. Think of this man, John Newton, the one who wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace, once a slave trader, and then giving William Wilberforce encouragement to end slavery for all time. And those are just big. We can, we can look closer to see those, those buds beginning to bloom uh, of people who have worked through difficulties and are now friends again. We can, we can look within our own lives and seeing ways that Jesus has helped break the power of different aspects of evil, how he is, he is changing us and growing us, and though we are so slow teaching us to love, we are seeing the fulfillment of this promise that the evil yoke is broken. And yet, and yet, there's so much of it that's hidden. I mean, that's why we sung with longing some of the songs we sang, although we are weeping. Keep, help us keep sowing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because it is so hidden. There's this one hymn that says, and though the wrong seems oft so strong, and that's the way it is, right? The wrong seems so strong. If you want to look like an expert, just be cynical and you'll probably be proven right. Pessimism seems to rule the day. And so it's, it's hard for us to be hopeful. And yet God's word calls us to exactly that. If we're wanting to know what to do with these promises, I think Isaiah actually models for us what to do in a couple of verses that are preceding the passage where Isaiah says, as he is beginning to look down this telescope, says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face and I will hope in him. Right now, God is hiding his face, Isaiah says. I know right now the odds seem against you. It seems God is distant. It is hard to imagine, but God has promised. God is with us. Therefore, I will wait, and I will hope. And that's what this passage calls you and me to do. It, we're not being called to be like Gideon where we have to do something brave and daring of taking 300 soldiers. We're not being called to do something like Moses where he has to lead thousands of people through the wilderness. But we are being called to something that is difficult, that seems ridiculous. We're being called in the face of all evidence that we can see to see something different. To see there is a deeper reality. To see that no matter what might be the case about what we see in the news 
or even what we see in ourselves, there is something that renders all of that irrelevant. And that is that God is with us. That He is our Emmanuel. And because that is true, we have all the reason to hope. We have all the reason to look forward and expect joy. We're in a world of pessimism, but we as the people of God are called to be someone different. We're called to see the world, to, to recognize that right now the Christmas tree is already in the house. And there's an agony, right? There's an agony because, because we're waiting and we know that things are going to be so good, but there's, there's a joy because that Christmas tree reminds us of what's going to take place and we're so looking forward to the day that we can unwrap the treasures that God has for us and we can rejoice. And so even now in this time of agony, there's kind of a deliciousness in the agony. There is a joy in the anticipation because we have in God's promises the ability to hope. 